University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. For today's conversation, we turn to John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, uh, we are celebrating Palm Sunday. Uh, most of us always have seen the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday in this serene image. Jesus is riding on the back of a perfectly manicured donkey. He recently had his robes bleached white at the ancient dry cleaners. And there is great joy and rejoicing all around Jesus. It's an unusual sequence for Jesus in his ministry because he goes from the triumphal entry to the disruption at the temple because most of Jesus' ministry, he's been flying under the radar when it comes to attention-seeking behavior. And don't misunderstand me, we, we do see Jesus in the Gospels performing miracles and healings, giving sight back to the blind, returning strength into the legs of the crippled, and even resurrecting the dead. But just as often as we see Jesus performing these miracles, we then see him also instructing the people to not tell anyone about what has happened. Or how often do we see Jesus amassing a crowd of people, and we think, wonderful, thousands are following Jesus, only for him to shift and give a difficult teaching, testing people's faithfulness to whether or not they will follow him. So despite the grandiose attention of the triumphal entry and the disruption at the temple, Jesus led with humility without needing the validation by the people around him and certainly not by the crowds who followed him and needed something from him. In fact, what we see in the hours leading up to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion found in our passage in John chapter 13 seems a bit more on course with Jesus' mode of operation. And John puts it this way. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a curious phrase in this section of the story. But it immediately raises some difficult questions. For one, what more can Jesus do for them? When you stop and think about the entire span of the gospel narratives, Jesus has done remarkable things for these men. It's not every day that God becomes flesh and dwells among us. In fact, it's the only time in human history. So you can't even begin to put into words what it must have meant to these men to be chosen by Jesus to be his closest followers. Some of them were poor Un unremarkable peasants. Others were tax collectors and con men. There were teenagers among them, and the vast number of them were illiterate fishermen from no-name places in the faded back country of Israel's former glory. And he didn't just invite them, but he empowered them to do something more. He showed them that they were loved and beautiful and connected and blessed and forgiven and purpose-filled people. They got a front row seat and opportunity to collaborate with God in the incredible work of transforming the world through justice and grace and inclusiveness and compassion. Many of them just witnessed Jesus performing miracles, but had experience too being healed and transformed and renewed. 
They were promised to be leaders of God's revolution through the church when Jesus was gone. So yes, Jesus has done extraordinary things for these men. And now we know in the coming chapters he's going to die for them. So what more could Jesus have done for them? There's a TV show called Miracle Workers, and it's based on this idea that God gets bored and disdainful towards human and decides to blow up earth. (laughs) And before you think that's too far of a stretch, just read the first 12 chapters of Genesis and you'll think, oh, well, that's not a new idea. (laughs) Except God is willing not to blow up earth if some of the workers in heaven can prove to God that humanity is worth saving. I mean, when you, when you stop and think about it, what more does God have to do for humanity that God has not already done for us? Therefore, if, if I were Jesus in this moment in John 13, then I'd be asking what they could do to me to show me the utmost of their love for me. It's not a question of what he could do for them because he's already done everything for them. So Jesus has already spent three years performing miracles, healing the sick, resurrecting the dead, inviting the unwanted into God's love and mercy, taught them a new way of thinking and living and on. Shouldn't Jesus get all the attention that he deserves right now? Shouldn't at this point the disciples give Jesus a little admiration and validation for who he is? And not just the disciples, but what about all the crowds that came to hear him preach and witness his miracles and the hurting and broken that were healed and and the marred that were transformed, the self-righteous that were given mercy? Shouldn't they all recognize him for who he is and what he's done for them? And why stop there? The entire nation of Israel, the Roman Empire, the known world should all be bowing down and giving Jesus words of gratitude and acclamation, but no What John tells us in John chapter 13, verse 2, is this. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. The last time I preached on John chapter 13, I gave you a pictorial survey of the most common foot ailments, including corns and ingrown toenails and plantar warts. I'm not going to put that up on the screen today. (laughs) But what I will tell you about is what I had to deal with when I ran a marathon this year. (laughs) What they didn't tell you when you trained to run a marathon, which I forgot from the first times I was running them, is when you pound the pavement for hundreds of miles and you are a toe striker, eventually you're going to wear out your toes, to which my two toes next to my big toes, the nails completely wore off. I'm not going to put a picture up there. Again, that's disgusting. And, And on top of that, guys just in general have disgusting feet. Therefore, I cannot understand why Jesus, in his right mind, would wash the disciples' feet. Who were all dudes. <laughs> and if I were Jesus, I'd be calling for some toe fungal check on the end seat down there. I believe Bartholomew's got some major issues that we need to address in this moment. Remember, these folks walked around in sandals all day and, and, and unpaved roads in the dirt and the grime and arid environment. 
We don't know uh, if the ancients practiced the art of manicure, but we do know that the toenail clipper was not invented until 1875. You know, there's some dirt and cracked feet with some of those mangled toenails. Why would Jesus do this? Why would the Son of God come from heaven, dwell among us, do all these amazingly remarkable things that he did for 33 years just to end it all with cleaning the disciples' feet? Remember what John said in verse 1? That Jesus would now show them the full extent of his love. Instead of being the Son of God who parades around expecting people to show him just how awesome he is and why they should grovel at his feet, Jesus, through humble service, validates the disciples as worthy of God's love. Jesus' full extent of his love is to validate the disciples as beloved children of God. Paul describes it this way in his letter to the Philippians. Jesus, who's being in very nature of God, made himself a servant, humbling himself and becoming obedient even to death. What Paul is trying to describe is the incalculable nature of God becoming flesh, dwelling among us, not as a self-righteous king, but as a humble servant that lifted humanity, healed their brokenness, mended their wounds, restored their soul, and showed them their value to a loving God. The full extent of Jesus' love is to wash the disgusting feet of the disciples, these, these idiots that get it wrong again and again in the Gospels, these traitors that would abandon him just hours from now in his time of need. In this act, Jesus is showing them the value and worth they have to God. Again, this is the same person who, who performed all these miracles, did all these miraculous feats, and yet this is the full extent of his love for them. All these things he's done, but in verse 1, now he shows them the full extent of his love. Whatever he's doing is not just noteworthy, it's monumental. The Son of God in all of his glory and power, all of his love and devotion to those he's ministered to, knelt down on his hands and knees, washed the dirty and grimy and stinky feet of the disciples. He washed each one. He washed Thomas's feet, who would doubt his coming resurrection. He washed James and John's feet, the two sons of Zebedee who so self-righteously fought over who would sit next to him in his coming glory. He comes to Peter, and Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet. He believes that he should be washing Jesus' feet. And you know what feet he washed? Judas Iscariot. He scrubs every inch of the dirt off his feet. But the disciples nor we should be surprised by the display of unselfishness. He already had told them that the greatest in the kingdom of God would be the greatest and most humble servant of all. Jesus extends his selfless ministry to the defeat to the feet of the disciples. I can just hear the echoes of Paul's famous words in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. It's not envious. It's not boastful. It's not self-seeking. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes and perseveres. Love never fails. Look what happens in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand 
what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, look, that, that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. It never ceases to amaze me the way that Jesus shows us that our world is upside down, and he's turning it right side up. Despite the fact that Jesus knows about what's about to transpire in the coming hours and days, his subsequent arrest, false accusations, the the torture, the brutal crucifixion, and his death, he still chose the path of humility and service, a path of lifting the disciples in a sense of worth, not as measly peasants and fishermen and tax collectors and second-rate religious people, but as beloved children of God. And yet, did we miss the verse where the disciples said, thank you? Or posted a picture with the hashtag, Jesus is amazing, but should probably wash his hands three times after touching Matthew's feet? In a world crafted around receiving admiration and validation, it makes no sense that Jesus would not only do this for the disciples, but would not seek recognition for doing it. Our culture is so validation-centric. It's, it's responsible for anyone who wants their ideas and choices and achievements and opinions to be valid by others around them. After all, what is, what is the first thing we do as children when we accomplish something? We look to our parents for recognition and validation that we did good things. Of course, we all like validation by others once in a while. I mean, who doesn't like to be told that they look good, that their idea was brilliant, or that someone is proud of them? These are all normal things that everyone wants to hear. And yet, in a world with over 4 billion people on social media posting pictures and thoughts and videos on every fraction of a second of what's going on in our lives, it's easy to see that we seek unhealthy validation from others for who we are, for what we look like, and what we've done. Uh, But before you think uh, that I'm going to throw social media under the bus as the soul-sucking social mechanism for making people feel bad for who they are and jealous of what others have. Social media is just merely the, the latest cultural obsession with unhealthy validation. Our culture shapes us into how we view ourselves and others. It affects our values, what we consider to be right and wrong. This is how the society we live in influences our choices. Self-concept is the way that we see ourselves. It's a thought about who we are, how we see others, and what kind of person we think we are. It's different from the actual reality because people have a positive and negative view of themselves based on what they think others think of them. Culture plays a huge role in shaping one's sense of identity and also influences how individuals relate to each other in society. From the clothes that we buy, to the celebrities we glorify, to the types of cars and homes that we are told we need to own, to the vacations that we take, from the way that we um, look at a type of person that we call friends, from the way that we post online, to the way that we think about what others post online, we are influenced by this cultural mechanism that pushes us towards unhealthy validation. We are trained to find our sense of worth and value based on what others think of us. 
And in turn, we begin to see and measure others through the way that we believe the world perceives us. And this cycle continues over and over again, changing forms in our life, whether it be the way that we look, our health, our weight, our height, our job, how much money we have, the size of our house, the brand of our car, the clothes that we wear, or who our friends are, or who our spouse is, or what our kids act like. And don't forget their accomplishments, too. We have believed the lie that we are not valuable unless the world sees us as valuable. Don't believe me? In the last couple of weeks, we've had the Oscars, the Screen Actors, the Critics' Choice, and the Grammy Award Ceremonies, in addition to a bunch of other award ceremonies that no one really cares about. (laughs) These ceremonies are just giving awards to people who already work in an industry that it's all about seeking validation from their peers and their audiences. But then we have to watch the pre-ceremony red carpet walks of all these wealthy celebrities dressed to the nine in their thousand-dollar dresses and suits. I guess their money and their fame isn't enough. These celebrities need us to ooh and awe over what they are dressed in as if our validation is going to make them any better. Again, human nature is to want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want to be appreciated. There's nothing wrong with any of these things in their basic form, but often, without realizing it, we are taught at a young age and then carry this mentality in our whole life as individuals of what we look like, the actions we take, the things that I accomplish are not meaningful unless others see and recognize and praise and celebrate who I am and what I have done. Take social media, for example. For far too many people, it's like their dates and their significant other and their accomplishment of their children and their vacations they have taken and the meals they are eating aren't actually real unless they post it online. We probably all know excessively uh, that bad habit of scrolling through social media leads to a lot of bad mental health. It's actually proven that high functioning and social media leads to depression and anxiety because we're constantly comparing ourselves to others or worried about if others are validating us. But again, social media is just the latest mechanism that we do that as human beings. Ever find yourself in a new way of doing your hair, wearing a new outfit you love, or being working out physically hard, but you don't feel like you've accomplished anything unless somebody affirms that your hair looks good or affirms that it looks like you've lost weight or gives you praise for the good work that you've done. Ever find yourself truly bothered to your core despite the fact that you have the favor of coworkers and neighbors or fellow church members, but there's that one person that really doesn't like you and it gnaws you to the bone? Psychologically, more often than we realize, we are continually seeking the validation of others in order to believe we look good, we feel good, made the right decisions, have the right opinions, and have actually accomplished something in our life. And these are all models of unhealthy external validation. As research shows, human beings are naturally social creatures. We're we're programmed to want approval of others. But that unhealthy validation leads to a lot of unhealthiness in our life. While we desire external validation is normal, far too often our identity and who we are as human beings is wrapped up in others. Most of you recall last summer I I nearly lost my right eye. Um, 
let alone my eyesight. Um, somehow I developed something called a corneal ulcer in my right eye. Essentially, there was this bacteria that had embedded itself in my eye and was spreading rapidly. Uh, my eye was swelling, uh, creating unbearable pain. And after days of, of, of going to different doctors, I finally was sent to what was called a corneal specialist who told me that most likely I had two options. One is I was going to lose my eye, or two, I was going to permanently lose my eyesight in my right eye. And over a series, uh, series of weeks, I had to take doses of antibiotics every hour on the hour, and I quite literally could not see out of my right eye. This is what it looked like looking out of my right eye for weeks. And I remember contemplating all the ways that I was going to be impaired by this, all the things that I would miss out on, all the things that I took for granted of having two functioning eyes. And over a series of months, a, a miracle happened. My vision was restored. Now, it's never going to be the same again. I have this permanent haze in my eye. But now I have seen, uh, I've been given a second chance to see things clearly. What Jesus did for the disciples, what, what he did through the cross, what he's still doing for humanity is, is giving us a second chance to see ourselves differently. Instead of seeing ourselves through the unhealthy validation of the world around us, Jesus is inviting us to see ourselves through the eyes of a loving God. For some, that fact alone should stir you to change the way you see yourself and move past what others think of you. For others, we need to make more practical steps in our lives for that truth to set in as a new reality, to recognize that God values you and God loves who you are. Recognizing that all are human is a critical step in believing God's empowering love for us. Despite ourselves, all of us are, are going to make mistakes. We all have flaws. But there's a God who's willing to clean our dirty feet, die for us, and restore us to fullness. That's powerful and validating love. Deep inside, we understand that Others don't define us. Our, our negative views of ourselves don't define us. Love defines us. Love radiating from our Creator who desires to journey with us to change our beliefs about ourselves and about the world so that we can see ourselves and the world differently. And through following Jesus, studying his teachings, his life, and his ministry, journeying alongside others who also follow Jesus, we can begin to see and believe who we are, not what others think we are, for better or worse, embracing God's beloved grace and mercy and compassion for us as beautiful creations of God's goodness. I believe the Spirit of God is at work around us and within us. And I believe we often see God at work in our thoughts and the way that we see ourselves in the world. But that's there, right there in that moment. God is doing profound work psychologically and physiologically and spiritually within us, trying to bring a different voice of reason into our life. But we have to decide in faith whether or not we'll listen to that voice, whether we'll see through God's eyes, whether we begin to reevaluate what we believe to be realistic about who we are and how others see us. So maybe this morning, God is trying to tell you that you are beautiful. Maybe the Almighty is telling you that you are enough. 
despite what the latest articles or magazines or headline might suggest. Maybe God is reminding you that you are a good parent. Even if you're not making six figures or even if you make mistakes and fumble all over yourself because you are reminded that you are God's child too. Maybe God is telling you that something you maybe never heard from your parents, that God is proud of you. Maybe God is telling you that you can find freedom from shame because God is with you no matter what happens. How do you hear God, though? You have to listen. You have to listen well. You have to get away from the noise. We have to put down all the things that distract us and invalidate us to hear God's voice in our life. But the last thing we learned from our text this morning is about service. Because we see that serving others helps them see themselves as God sees them. It's quite remarkable that Jesus goes from this picturesque celebration on Palm Sunday to just days later on his hands and knees validating the disciples in a deeply spiritual way. Journeying with God, feeling the validation of God's love that gives us energy and life and who we are doesn't just end there. It continues as God's love pours out of our lives and into the lives of others that we intentionally serve. It's remarkable that in this text, Jesus gives us one of those moments that we kind of do this with. Because he tells us after he washed their feet that we should do the same. He didn't say when it's uncomfortable in a worship service, when we're all dressed up nice and it would be weird for us to undo our shoes. He didn't say do it whenever you're forced into the moment. He calls us to wash each other's feet. Now I'm going to call on the anxiety in the room. We're not going to invite you to do that this morning. (laughs) But I do want to invite you to recognize and embrace that there are moments each day in our life in which we can serve others. Maybe not taking off their shoes and washing their feet because they probably don't want you to do that. But finding unique ways to put others before yourself. And so this morning, we want to model the way for you. Showing you the moments that you can have each day to wash others' feet, whether proverbially or physically.